Hi and welcome to another episode of Transformations with Jane. So today I will be interviewing the very lovely Sarah Bull. She is an Australian translator who lives in Tokyo and she's been in Japan about the same amount of time as me, I think, about 16 years. So today we'll be talking about how she got to be a translator, what it's like being a translator and a little bit about her new podcast she's launching called Translation Mavens. So if you're a translator yourself, I think you'll find this podcast very interesting. And you'll also hear us talking a little bit about how she struggled to get her podcast started. And um, me too. Like it wasn't all like just smooth sailing. So if you're thinking about starting your own podcast, definitely have a listen to that um it's sort of towards the end and you will you will hear us talking about some of the blocks that we had and some of the things that we did to avoid trying to even launch our podcast basically so um yeah i'd really love it if you could let other translators know that this new podcast is available for and it's especially um probably going to be of use and interest to people working in the japanese translation industry and I find this a little bit too with uh, this podcast, that it's it's generally of interest to people living in Japan. So yeah, if you know someone who's living in Japan, let them know about this podcast as well. So yeah, have a listen to um, Sarah and I talking. And I think this is going to be episode number 10. And so that means that I have fulfilled my expectations for myself, which was when I started this podcast was to keep it so that I could actually even just get going was that I'm going to do just the 10 episodes and see what happens. So um, this is the final episode of season one. So I'm calling this season one. And um, so by the time this comes out, it will be nearly summer holidays and I'll be jetting off to New Zealand again for the summer holidays with my kids to avoid the Japan summer. And so I'll be sort of thinking about A, if I'm going to continue the podcast and B, um, what sort of it might look like for the next season. So if you'd like to be interviewed or, you know, to be on the podcast in season two, definitely get in touch with me. You can email me at Jane, so that's J-A-Y-N-E at Jane Nakata, N-A-K-A-T-A dot com. Or you can find me on Instagram at the same handle, Jane Nakata, or on um, Facebook, Transformation Retreats with Jane Nakata. And let me know, yeah, I really want to be on your podcast next season, or even just please do another season, um, so that, yeah, if to see if I can, uh, see if we're going to keep going here, or if we're going to leave it at that. I really enjoyed doing this, but it is a lot of work, so, you know, if I, um, but if I have a lot of people who are like, yeah, oh my god, don't, don't stop, then I'll definitely keep going. <laughs> All right, so yeah, let me know, and I'd love to hear from you anyway. All right, so here is the interview with Sarah. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the Transformation with Jane podcast. Hi, Jane. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Now, Sarah, you are a translator mm -hmm. in Tokyo, mm -hmm. and you are the host of your own very new 
show your own podcast show very, yeah very new. yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah so welcome to the podcast and thanks for agreeing to be on today we're going to talk about some some fun things about being in japan life in japan being a translator in japan yep. so yeah tell us a little bit more about that um you know what you do what kind of um, translating you do, that sort of okay, thing? Okay, so at the moment, um, as far as work goes, I guess I wear three different hats. So I'm a translator, mainly a legal translator. Um, so for that, mainly I'm helping uh, legal clients, usually law firms, get their documents into English. I don't translate in the other direction. I'm also a teacher, so I teach legal translation um, for the master's degree that I did at University of Queensland remotely. Um, and I now have a podcast, which is called Translation Mavens, and that's for my fellow translators. Yeah, so you're a teacher, a translator, a teacher, a podcaster. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. So you you focus mainly on legal translation. Yes. That sounds really dry. <laughs> yeah. Is it dry? <laughs> like it, it, there's more variety than you would think. So um, yeah, a lot of it is dry. Um, but then sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's quite juicy. You know, it's translating their most confidential documents like emails oh, true and, yeah contracts and all kinds of things so there's a mix yeah so you must get to see some interesting things every now and yes. then about what's <laughs> happening behind the scenes and a few things yes but you don't get to talk about it <laughs> of course you can't yeah you can't yeah tell anyone about that's it right. but yeah that's sort of you must feel um sort of like yeah, respond. You have a sense of responsibility and and all of that. Yes, but um, I, as, yeah. I, I think it's um, I'm lucky in that I'm always working in a team. Even if I'm working directly with lawyers, the lawyers that I work with have excellent English. So it's not all riding on me, right? It's not only my eyes that are looking at the English. There's always going to be other people. So it's nice to work as part of a team. Yeah. No, oh, that's good. Yeah. So you actually you are a freelance translator? Yeah, my situation is a little bit unique, I suppose. I used to work in-house and then after when my daughter turned 1, I went um freelance or independent, but after about a year I was invited to become an equity partner in a translation agency. So I even though I am an independent translator, I have kind of a special relationship with that agency. So I get work from them on a very regular basis. So I think um, it's a little bit different from your normal independent translator who might be working with a lot more different clients than I am. I see. Yeah. So um, I'm obviously not a translator myself, so I don't know anything about the world of translators. Yeah. And um, yeah, so tell me a little bit about like what it takes to be a translator, because I, you know, I live in Japan, I speak Japanese and English, and often I'm called on to translate yes. um, at various random things. Like, <laughs> like last weekend, I was translating at an international summit yes, here I in Fukushima, right? And we had like delegates from all these different Pacific Island countries. We had prime ministers and yep. 
and you know I wasn't translating at the official meetings obviously um but in the between times when people were walking around the hotel and going like you know where can I have a cigarette or um oh we really want to go to a bar off site where can we go mm-hmm. like this that was up to me to sort things out for people and um yeah it's like it was a big responsibility like dealing with yes. these people you know very high level people yeah, from right. different countries so that's and it's just a little mm, point little... to what I do um so I'm more like at my desk just dealing with the written word most of the time um mm-hmm. so it's not quite as glamorous as that I did actually train as an interpreter as well as a translator so Technically, I'm qualified, but I've only done one interpreting job or um, kind of interpreting work when I was in-house since I graduated. So I wouldn't feel comfortable doing um, that in a professional sense at all. My kind of translation is um, sort of, you know, at home, well, because I work from home now at my desk typing away. Um, so I guess it it means that you have to... Um, have kind of an attention to detail Um, but a lot of people think that that's the most important thing and actually you also have to be quite flexible because the clients want different things so if you get too hung up on what you want um, it can cause problems what you think is the best translation Hmm. I can see, yeah, how I might struggle there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there have been struggles in the past. <laughs> yeah, interesting. Okay. And so you've trained as a translator. And what sort of things do you learn at, like, translator yeah. in the translation course? So that uh, taking the course to become a translator and interpreter was probably the hardest thing I've done in my life, I would say. Oh, really? So, yeah, it's a two-year course at the University of Queensland, the one that I did. So it's a master's degree. And uh, now it's a little bit more flexible and you can do just translation or just interpreting. But when I did it, that wasn't really an option. So it was a very full-on two years. So we did everything from public speaking in both languages, um, you know, impromptu speeches in Japanese, that was challenging, Um, and to, um, like, political translation, summarising things in Japanese, I mean, everything, you know, then um, right up until by the end we were doing live simultaneous interpreting for, like, public audiences. (laughs) So it Mm. um, it was very full on but amazing learning experience. I can imagine. Mm. Um, yeah, so in that course, you were you doing from Japanese to English and English to Japanese or just one way? So for translation, um, the basic rule is that you only translate into your native tongue. There are exceptions. Lots of Japanese sure. people are good enough to go the other direction. But yeah, for translation, I was studying only Japanese into English, but for interpreting, you don't really get that option. You need to be able to go in both directions. So that can be True. quite confronting. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, and very mentally draining yes. as well. Yes, I used to say that my brain hurt when I just finished some <laughs> of the interpreting tests or, yeah, assignments that we had. Yeah, um, yeah, like just this um, experience of being involved in the summit last yes. weekend and talking to some of the, the people who are there as official translators and things. Mm. 
and saying, oh, I'm so glad I'm not in that room with such and such and such and such prime ministers right now because they've only got 15 minutes and to have their bilateral talks. Mm. And when you're doing dual translation, that just means five minutes of talking. Right. And and I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. You, know, you know, like, and, yeah, if you're doing the, you're translating for both sides, switching between the two, it's, it's must be, be oh, so stressful. Yeah, yeah, it's a very high practice <clears throat> um, thing to do. And I think with translation, um, even though we do have time deadlines, you know, that are quite tight a lot of the time, it's different. It's not that same kind of high pressure, high stress, because you can look things up. You know, you can Google things and you can look in your dictionary and you have time to, you know, try and translate something and then go back and fix it. But in interpreting, it's all happening real time. So, you know, you might be able to look up the occasional word there, here or there and you should, in lots of cases, you have a partner that you're working with who will help you um, by looking things up and, you know, giving you notes or something. But it's it's a very different kind of work and definitely much more pressure involved. Mm. yeah okay yeah so um how did you get your japanese to be a, at a level where you could you could be a translator mm. like obviously you have to be reasonably good <laughs> yeah. don't you well, there's an aptitude <laughs> test um before you go into the master's course which i think it, it tests your japanese but it also tests your aptitude for translation and some and interpreting somehow so um yeah the in my case, I came over as an exchange student after I'd studied Japanese at high school, so from grade 8 through to grade 12. So I had a bit of a grounding, and then I did the full-on exchange experience. So I lived with host families. I went to Japanese high school um, for one year. Then I went back and went to uni Um and so I sort of improved my Japanese kind of at uni. Um, then um, after uni, I I came back to Japan and I worked for four years. But the first maybe year and a half of that was really key because I came on working holiday and I actually worked um, the front desk at the Sheraton in Yokohama. And so oh, okay. the the aim of that was to get my Japanese up from where it was, which was like, you know, last year of high school exchange student type level to more of a grown up way of speaking using the polite language and everything. So that was a real school by fire. I can imagine. Yeah. Yes. Um, and using the whole polite language. That's, yeah, yeah, if you can get really, on top of that. Yeah. They were really mm. supportive and nice to me. So they let me start with the basic like desmas, just normal politeness and work up to the really polite honorific language. Um, so that was good, but it was still intense. Yes, yeah. I can imagine. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, but I, I was earning, I think, 800 yen when I did that job, 800 yen an hour. So that's not oh, very much. really? So no. it's like being paid to study. So after a year and a half, I kind of um, got to the point where I needed to earn some money. So I, um, I stopped doing that and started teaching English. But while I was teaching English, I was always studying. And so I actually took um, the level one of the... JLPT, the Japanese Language Proficiency Test, 
while yeah. I was working at the hotel and passed. And so my rule after I quit the hotel was that I had to take the JLPT every year. And if I didn't pass level one, that would mean that my Japanese was getting worse and it was time to quit teaching English and go back to something where I was using Japanese. Yeah, because there weren't really many options for foreigners other than Japanese uh, English teaching like at that time when you came to Japan. Yeah. Like, I'm just amazed that you even got a job in the hotel, you know, like. Yeah, it was a lucky break. That must have been tricky. Yeah. Well, I think it was, um, it was really luck. I went to like the Working Holiday Association or something and they just happened to have a posting for that. Um, And I guess not many people coming on Working Holiday had you know, the Japanese level and were able to commute to Yokohama or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, I was lucky. It was a great experience. But, yeah, it was it was um, pretty intense. So you're from Australia. Yes. And um, so you came to Japan. You've had your, yeah, you've had your, where, where were you when you were an exchange student? Tokyo. Part of Japan? You're in yeah. Tokyo. Okay. Midwest. Tokyo, what they call um, Nishi Tokyoshi now, it used to be called Tanashi. Okay, so you've always been sort of around the Tokyo area. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and you're still there. Yeah. So now and... I'm in Saitama, but not that far into Saitama. So, yeah, about I think we're only about 10Ks out of Tokyo. Okay. So um, your family, you know, how do you go with balancing being in Japan and your family back in Australia? How does that work in your lifestyle? Yeah, it's, um, I think it, I've got it pretty good. <laughs> I'm a bit lucky um, because my family actually loves Japan and so they come quite often. And so uh, my mom will usually come every year um, or she hasn't come this year, but she's definitely coming next year. And my sister comes every couple of years as well. Um, my dad used to come all the time before he passed away. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm lucky in that sense. And I go home um, as well. So I used to go home for Christmas a lot of the time and for weddings and things like that. But um, I think it was 2014 maybe that my dad got um sick so he had a heart attack and then sudden onset dementia and so when that happened I started going home for about two months every year over Christmas Um, and I could do that because my daughter was in daycare Um, and so now he's passed away but um, we go back in the Japanese summer holidays so that's like six weeks um, and so we did that last year and she went to school and I worked. And so there's a lot of going back and forth in our family. So I'm lucky. Well, that's good that your your family also likes to come to Japan and yeah. take some of the, the burden of the traveling of you. Yeah, um, and that they're able to do that and mm-hmm. that you're able yeah, to travel back to Australia when you want to and yeah, even though now you kind of, yeah, we are experiencing this in our family as well. My daughter has just started real school here. Yeah. And so, yeah, we can't just go back whenever we feel like it mm-hmm. um, now, mm-hmm. obviously. But we will be um, going back for six weeks in the summer holidays too. And, yeah, she'll be going to school in New Zealand. Yes. Um, because luckily it's not 
holidays yeah. in New Zealand. <laughs> so I'm I'm sort of yeah grateful to be from the southern hemisphere because I know our northern hemisphere friends mm-hmm. who want to do the same thing are going back to the summer holidays in their own countries as well. Yeah, and yeah. So they don't get that sort of um, chance to make their kids go to school all year long. <laughs> no, I mean um, <laughs> to give them that you know experience yeah, in an English school. Yeah, it's a bit more tricky. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so um, yeah, I've I've noticed that you have um, y- your daughter goes to Gakudo, is that yeah, right? Yeah, does. the after school, and that it's and you've said this yourself. It's very hippie, uh-huh. <laughs> hippie Gakudo. So tell us a little bit about this hippie Gakudo because I just you know I notice so often in Japan that things are just extremely sterile and yeah. um, very uptight <laughs> and about kids in daycare or kindy or whatever. Um, yeah. And there are the odd sort of more relaxed um, go with the flow type places, but they can be quite hard to find. So, yeah, we, yeah. we lucked out. Tell us about your one. Um, we mm. really got lucky. So when um, I was getting ready to sort of go back to working full time when uh, my daughter was coming up to being one, so I think she was about 10 months when she started going to daycare. And um, we literally – got the list that the city had sent out of all the different daycare places and just spent the day driving around and checking them out, just, you know, drive past, have a bit of a look. And uh, the one that we chose was actually the first one, which is it's not that far from our house, but it's driving about three k's through rice fields and, um, you know, market gardens and stuff like that. And, um, I really liked it straight away and that's the place that we ended up choosing. But it turns out that um, it was just perfect for me. For um, It took a little bit of getting used to, but uh, it's, a, it's actually part of a very Japanese philosophy that actually starts in, started in Saitama. It's called the Sakura Sakurambo um, philosophy of early childhood. Uh, early childcare education, I guess, um, but it's not that mainstream. But there are actually daycare centers like this all through Japan, um, and their basic philosophy is it's kind of like Montessori in follow the child, like it's very child led, but it's different as well. They don't have any toys, they don't have any plastic. Um, there's a lot of mud. Uh, they, don't use, <laughs> they don't use CDs, so all the music is on piano. Um, right. Yeah, they're very <clears throat> concerned with their, um, like, building up their kids' physical strength. So they do a lot of what they call um, masopi, like rhythmic play, which is kind of like calisthenics and dance, I guess, um, to some sort of very traditional songs. And so... Um, it really was an adjustment. One of the biggest things that was an adjustment for me was that they don't use nappies. And okay. yeah, so mm. that was, uh, that was a bit um, in your face at the beginning, but I was so grateful because they had a no character rule, which I was really pleased about because a lot of the daycare centers here are just plastered in Disney and Ampaman and, you know, all that stuff. And I didn't really, want all that cutesiness 
Um, mm. And so she ended up in this daycare where she was going on walks out in the country and she was catching yabbies and collecting, you know, chestnuts and acorns and, you know, all kinds of things like that. And the gakudo is like a continuation of that. So it's a more relaxed version of it you know they have they do their homework and and um they've got their unicycles and all that but they don't they certainly don't have a tv or anything like that they don't have any electronic games um it's very encouraged that they go outside and get dirty and get active or if they're inside a lot of the time it's not structured at all but a lot of the time they end up doing origami or sewing something or making something or um it's just for me it's just awesome and because my daughter is an only child i feel like she gets so much out of interacting with the kids that are older than her and now also the kids that are a grade below her now that she's in grade two yeah, and I saw one of your um, your posts recently about they were using fire yeah. to cook something. Yeah, well, <laughs> All of this, I was like, so wild. Yeah, it's no, great. they do. I had so many of those um, culture shock moments, especially at the daycare. Now I hardly even, you know, blink an eye when I see them cooking stuff on the fire or whatever. But they have this massive hall at the daycare and it has big pillars that go all the way up to the ceiling and one day I went to get um, my daughter and there was a kid like way up the pillar (laughs) and just climbed up and I was like panicking I was like you know there's a kid up in the eaves you know and the, the teacher came over one of the teachers and she was just like wow that's amazing did you climb all the way up there look at how strong you've gotten <laughs> I was like whoa okay <laughs> that wasn't the reaction I was expecting but after six years of that culture that's sort of more where I'm at now you know yeah that reminds me of, like every time I go take my kids back to um New Zealand I put my my son into the kindergarten there and it's very much you know mud mm-hmm. water bare feet I mean it's not as sort of a, um towards the the no plastic or anything like what you've been mm-hmm. um, describing but it's sort of a nice sort of but in between the Japanese a super sort yeah. of organized clean play type yeah. kindergarten here and his and then in New Zealand he's got his super wild yeah. you know spend all day bare feet and and you know, wet and muddy yeah. sort of <laughs> New Zealand kindergarten. Yeah. So I'm very grateful that they have both mm, of them, mm. really. I mean, he learns a lot from his Japanese kindergarten in a different sort of yeah, sure, form. Sure. Um, but, yeah, in his New Zealand kindergarten, he also gets a chance to do the to do the stuff that, you know, just, yeah. And, like, they've got hammers and nails yeah. and saws. Yeah. And I saw those and I was like, oh, my God, if my husband finds out that there's hammers and nails and saws, he might not be allowed to come. Um, but they have a rule mm. and for safety. And the rule is you must wear shoes. When you use That's the rule. Saw. Yeah. When you're using the yeah, hammers yeah, and the nails, yeah. and the, you must wear shoes. That's the only mm, rule they have. Mm, and I was like, okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is. Keep it simple. I always think it's amazing, though, how seldom anything goes wrong. And that's exactly the thing. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm sure they have, and they, because it's New Zealand, they will have procedures in place. Yeah. And it has been sorted out so that, you know, there is the minimum chance of them injuring themselves. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that there's even the chance to even touch these things. It's just, yeah, yeah no, it, it's great. It's I very think. Yeah. empowering for the kids. And it's interesting, like, 
So Ruby started at 10 months. And like I said, they don't use plastic, right? So from 10 months, she was given all, you know, um, like China plates and things. And that hadn't even occurred to me to do that at home. You know, I'd just been serving her meals in plastic dishes all the time. But and occasionally, you know, a plate would get dropped and break or something. But they knew from a really young age that if they, you know, dropped a plate or threw a plate or something, um, <laughs> then it would break, right? So there was yeah, that, they learned it. Yeah, yeah that, I don't know if you call it respect, but an understanding of what they were mm-hmm. dealing with. They learned that right. really young. Mm, yeah that's a great way to put it yeah Yeah. it made you think that maybe well for me definitely um it made me realize that I was probably underestimating what my daughter could do and what she could handle a lot of the time Mm. so is is there anywhere that you know of that like if parents are looking for that kind of um daycare gakudo you know after school care is there anywhere that you know of that people can go to find like is a big list of where everything is or is it sort of they just have to you know for ask the mothers around them in their neighborhood and to find out or um yeah there used to be a magazine that had lists of them but I don't think it's in print anymore it was called Chiruchinbito I think that's kind of a weird one um but the I think if you google sakura sakurambo hoshiki that's in Japanese it really um, doesn't exist in English, um, sure. then, then you can find them. And sometimes there are places that have sort of a um, less stringent <laughs> like application yeah. of yeah. it as well. So they might just, you know, use some of the elements, which might be, it might be more attractive for some people who don't want to go all in because it is pretty full on. I mean, for the no nappies, and no hurry to toilet train them at all meant that for years I was doing like coming home with a Santa sack size like of bag of watch of washing <laughs> because they're playing sure. in the mud and yeah. not using nappies. So it is a bit of a commitment. But yeah, you can find them. As far as I know, there are only two in Tokyo. There's one um in like the Chofu area and one sort of down near maybe Tommy Gaia type area. Um, but there are actually quite a few of them in Saitama. But yeah, if you Google Sakura Sakurambo Hoshiki, then you'll probably find a lot of information on them. Um, good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's a good start probably. Mm. And and wherever you are in Japan, there may be somewhere nearby that is um, doing something of that yeah. on that spectrum. The other, thing, yeah. the other term to to Google, which will get you sort of something a bit similar um, but not as full on is doronko hoiku, so it's like mud, mud child care, right? So yeah, um, yeah, and that will get you places that will have the kids, you know, being a bit wilder and freer. Yeah, yeah. excellent. Mm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's a really good tip. And um, if I went back to myself three years ago, maybe I may have chosen a different kindergarten, but. Um, you know, I'm happy with the one mm. we have. It's a wonderful kindergarten, but yeah, it, it is quite sort of um, not regimented, but clean. Yes, yeah. <laughs> well, you're lucky you can balance that out a little bit um, by going yeah. back to New Zealand and putting them in those different environments. 
Yeah, definitely. And when we're in New Zealand, it's very much, um, you know, pretty much all our afternoons are at the park, mm -hmm. um, stomping in mud puddles or at the beach, digging in the sand. Um, that's pretty much just what we yeah. do. Because, and it, the great thing about New Zealand is that this, the nature is not going to attack you. Yes. <laughs> Unlike Japan, where you kind of have to be on guard. And I imagine it's a little bit like yeah. in Australia as well. Um, in New Zealand, there's almost nothing that's going to attack you, and you can just pretty much relax and let the kids yeah, play without worrying. Is there a snake or is there a giant wasp going to get them or something? Yeah. 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 So that's what I love about New Zealand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think I should lead an exodus of um, foreign women and their children to New Zealand <laughs> this summer, perhaps. You know, like, come along and we'll all just have a wonderful time. It's winter, though, mind yeah, you. Yeah, that's right. Um, but it's not that cold where I actually <clears throat> spend my time. It's sort of, you know, 10 to 15 degrees and can be a bit rainy is the only yeah, problem. But um, it isn't summer. I find it cold because yeah. I'm from the Sunshine Coast in Australia. So oh, we yeah, have, you we probably... But the thing is, you live in Saitama, yes. so you'll be yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. and I have coats and things now. I never used to have those You do, things. yeah. <laughs> uh, very good. Yeah, well, that was really interesting. So, yeah, um, if you're looking for information, we will put yeah. those, um, those terms in the show notes so that if you didn't catch them, um, just go to the show notes and have a look, and you will be able to find the Japanese words that you need to search for to find those um, types of daycare, um, kindergartens, and after-school mm. care. Yeah. Mm. All right. Yeah. So you're also, we talked about this at the start, working on your new podcast. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about your podcast, Sarah. Okay. So the podcast idea um, it comes from a few different um, angles, I suppose. So part of it is that um, I love going out and meeting other translators. I really enjoy it. But it's logistically difficult for me to go to as many translator events as I would like to um, because my husband often works on the weekend and I have a daughter who's in grade two. And so I do go to some, but I wish that I could spend more time connecting with other translators. And I think that there are a lot of other translators who are in a similar position. It might not be because they have kids. It might be because, you know, maybe they live, in New Zealand or Spain because she might or you know or also a lot of translators are quite introverted and so maybe they like connecting but it's also quite draining um and so yes. this is kind of a way for um I think hopefully for the community to connect in a different kind of sphere I suppose um that's you know, allows people to get to know other people in the industry and to for to benefit from their wisdom and experience. Um, because also even when you do go to one of these events, you know, you listen to the presenter um, and that's great. And then you'll have drinks and you'll sometimes somebody will say something that will blow your mind, right, like about productivity or about how they get clients or something but it is a social event at that point. And so you can't really like drill down and be like, hang on, tell me exactly how you use Let me get my pen and paper out now. What is it? And so this mm. is sort of a um, an opportunity to have those conversations for me to say, so how did you get into translation? And, you know, how does it work for you? And what things do you do to stay healthy? And, you know, really ask those questions that we sort of all want the answers to, but don't necessarily get the um, the chance to talk about 
Yeah, it sounds like a really um, like a really great service for your community to have that place to listen to, um, you know, maybe people they know mm-hmm. even um, talking about yeah how they do it their yeah, way that's yeah right. and learning from each other yeah, yeah hopefully and you know part of it is selfish as well I'm an ambivert. So I'm sort of between an extrovert and an introvert and my life as it is at the moment um, would probably suit an introvert a bit better. (laughs) I spend a lot of time by myself um, and not that much time with other adults having, you know, adult conversations. And so by doing this podcast, I get to have conversations that I'll enjoy with people that I'm interested in as well. So it's kind of self-serving in that way. But I think that just will come out in the fact that I'm interested in um, in what we're talking about when we do have these conversations on the podcast. Yeah, definitely. So that's, so you, <clears throat> you identify with the ambivert. Yes. Thing. I'm an extroverted introvert. Is that the, the same as an maybe, maybe? Um, because I love meeting people mm. and and talking to people, but I'm done so quickly, yeah. like about two hours, and I'm just like, like go into power <laughs> off mode, you know. <laughs> so I can probably handle it for um, yeah. a decent length of time, but then I really notice that I need to recover. Um, like so this is sort of a new concept for me, but I'm starting to schedule buffer days after like a big conference or something like that to sort of, you know, yeah, process all of the conversations that are buzzing around in my head and just spend some time by myself and yeah, get back to my normal equilibrium. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I do that too. And it took me a long time to realize that, (laughs) I'm not just a grumpy sod. I'm <laughs> actually someone who needs time alone, you know, like, um, yeah. but I can't always be alone either because no. that doesn't work either. No. Um, and if I'm not getting out there for those small bursts, you know, small error bursts of, you know, um, face-to-face, generally face-to-face I find is, is just a whole different mm. level to mm. being online. Yeah. yeah? So um, making those opportunities to meet people face-to-face mm. But not for ages, like a whole day and I'm just about pulling my hair out by the end of it. You know, a couple of hours maybe and then I feel good and I can go home and not be too drained. Mm. But, yeah, if I go to, you know, because I do these retreats and things Mm. that I'm on, I'm on, I'm on the, you know, I'm on duty for two or three days. And then afterwards I know I have to schedule in a week of very low key time. I'm not. I'm not doing anything that much for the sense. for a week afterwards. Yeah, well, I mean, because you're not only you know engaging with people that all that time, but you're also kind of responsible for making sure that things are going smoothly, right? So that takes yes. its toll as well, I'm sure. Yeah, it is can be stressful, mm. and that's sort of um, something I learned last year doing um, these retreats around Japan. Mm was um, I'm, I'm not in my own territory. Mm. So I was in Okinawa, I was in Kyoto. I mean, I do know Kyoto very well, but it's still not my home territory. Yeah. And then when I did a couple of retreats here in my city, mm. I was like, hey, this is a whole different ball game because I know whatever happens, I'm just going to know what to do, where to yeah. go, how to sort it. Yeah. And so I thought, well, that's just a whole different level of energy needed, mm. or like, a, you know, less energy required. And that's good for me because it means I'm not completely shattered after one of these events and I think it was Okinawa where 
I went um, there with two actually very well-known translators <laughs> from the <laughs> translation world. Um, and they had to look after me in the end because I caught this virus oh, no. and was just like com- almost completely incapacitated oh, <laughs> for the last um, day of it. Yeah. So thanks to them, the event <laughs> was safely finished. But um, yeah, and we all got home safely. But um, yeah, so I kind of learned a, a lesson there. And Having a just... virus in Okinawa is like a special kind of torture. <laughs> well, luckily it wasn't. Um, it was just one of those ones where your whole body hurts. Oh. And, you know, you just you have a fevery kind of thing. And that mm. was it. It wasn't um, another kind of nasty virus. But, um, yeah, yeah <laughs> I was sort of shame. like not functioning mm. on the last day there. Anyway, so that was a learning experience. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so um, that's awesome that your podcast is going to. And I think it's and I think I've noticed this with this podcast as well. Um, you know, it's it's uh, an um, an area that has been neglected until now. Mm-hmm. Um, there are no podcasts for translators in Japan, and and that sort of, I, especially in Japan. No, I think, no, there yeah. are. I, I sort of mm. looked and um, I found some podcasts on translation, but as far as I can see, there are none that deal specifically with Japanese to English, English to Japanese translation industry, and that's really where my focus is. Uh, when yes. I listen to the conversations with people in um, other language pairs in the translation industry, they're still interesting to me as a translator, but so much of it is like, oh, well, that's different. Oh, well, that doesn't apply. You know, so it would be nice to have conversations that are really relevant to my people. Yeah, exactly. And there's no shame in that being completely niche down no. to yeah, Japanese to English translators and, yeah, probably of even more interest to those in actually in Japan, mm. living and working in Japan. Who knows? Mm. Yeah, so it would be interesting to yeah. see. And also for people who are living in Japan and thinking about becoming a translator, yeah, well, I, here is a, a great chance to see what it's like. Mm, that's yeah. a big part of it, actually, because um, before I did my master's, I didn't know very much about it at all. Um, and really, I didn't even know if I wanted to be a translator or interpreter when I started my master's. I just knew that I wanted to make my Japanese better. Um, And I knew that that kind of intense master's degree would do that. And then when I got into it, I found out more. But um, it would have been nice to know more about what I was getting myself (laughs) into. Yeah. You know, and it was always helpful, I find, to hear other people's stories about the, you know, the career paths they've had, the decisions they've made, you know, that have got them to where they are today. Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure some people have no idea that it's possible to be this particular kind mm-hmm. of translator mm-hmm. or work in this industry or whatever. Yeah. So it's going to be great. Yeah, I'm yeah. excited. Mm. So um, tell us about the podcast. It's called, it's called Translation Mavens. Um, and so, yeah, as of now, there's just one little episode of me introducing myself and telling about what the podcast is going to be. Um, but from now on, it will be interviews with me and another, not necessarily a translator, actually, but somebody in the translation industry. And that's specifically the Japanese slash English translation industry. Um, but I'm really keen to get a lot of different perspectives. So I want to get a diverse um, range of people on the podcast. So I don't just want, you know, 
all the people like me who went to uni and studied translation. I want the people who never studied Japanese formally and still ended up being a translator or the people who are freelance, the people who are in-house, the, the veterans, the newbies, you know, all different. And also the native Japanese speakers and the native English speakers. And, you know, there's a lot of different stories that we can all learn something from. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And so at this at this time when we're recording, you've um you've recorded your first intro, but I think by the time this episode actually is released, you'll probably have another one or two yes. to yeah. for people to listen to. So that'll be good. Yeah. yeah that's exactly. Because now we are saying that this is gonna happen. It's definitely gonna happen, <laughs> yes, isn't that's it? That's right. <laughs> yes. So I had a so lot just, of um, trouble yeah. actually shipping my first episode at working up to that was quite hard and yeah thanks to a bit of prodding from you and a few other people um I was finally able to sort of you know press publish and get that out there and it is amazing the difference between an idea in your head even if you've been talking about it with other people and actually you know executing that idea there's a whole different feeling around it and I have to say it feels a lot better to have actually done something in the physical world in rather than just having thought about it and talked about it a lot yeah so um let's talk a little bit about that because um I know after I released this podcast Mm. a lot of people said to me oh, wow, you've got a podcast. I've been wanting to do a podcast for ages. Um, you know, how did you do it? And and I was like, well, I just followed the minimum viable product mm. idea. Uh, this is an experiment. And in the end, it took just, you know, committing to only having 10 episodes mm. and then just to see how it's going to go. And then I I just recorded that first very um, um, ah, uh, uh, um very sort mm-hmm. of random introduction episode and then I was kind of off mm-hmm. and and that's what it took but yeah to get from thinking about it to actually doing it mm-hmm. it was just a the only thing that was really stopping me was the fear yeah. there's no cost to starting a podcast no. these days you can do it with whatever you've got if you've got an iPhone and and a microphone in your earphones mm. it's plenty isn't yeah, it? yeah and then that's all you need to start a podcast. So there are no excuses. No, that's right. The only excuses are the things that are, it's basically yourself. The only thing mm-hmm. that's getting in the way is you. Mm-hmm. So but you really, why well, is if that? Anything like mm. me, you really will get in your own way. So I, <laughs> I think I've, um, I've listened to so many podcasts about doing podcasting and um, I've read articles and I have bought equipment and software that I don't need and I have you know um, considered all kinds of things that I sort of didn't need to consider and really um, putting the cart before the horse with a lot of stuff and um, part of me knew that I was delaying the scary bit (laughs) but I still you know um yeah, it was easy for me to justify, yeah, but if I approach people and I, I say we're going to do this, but then I don't know what I'm doing, then, you know, that'll be disrespectful and I'll look silly and all those kind of things. But, you know, people are kinder than you think, or the people I know are anyway. And um, I think um, I've actually been really um, pleasantly surprised by how how happy people are to you know be interviewed and yeah I don't think they're expecting the same level of um, 
perfection or anything that I was kind of putting on myself. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And so these are com- these are some of the blocks that mm. we have mm-hmm. and we don't really realise they're there until we question what's going on. So, yeah, yeah like, um, oh, I don't have the proper equipment mm-hmm. or nobody is going to want to be on my yeah. little unknown podcast that's rubbish mm-hmm. yeah when you actually take some action and figure out if that's true or not yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely mm. in fact I'm sort of you know so surprised by the opposite of that where I have approached some people who I just know that people will be fascinated to hear from and they're like oh me no I don't think anyone would care about what I have to say <laughs> and sometimes I have to be like are you kidding? <laughs> you know exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's so funny, isn't yeah. it? Like people who you who you just think are the bees yeah. knees, and every word that they have to say is so fascinating. Mm-hmm. They're like, "Oh no, nobody wants to hear what I have to say." Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> We're so hard on ourselves, mm-hmm. aren't we? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you like to overanalyze things, and yes. we know that that is part of your questioner nature. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah so um you and you and i are both um avid fans of gretchen rubin yay i'm I'm not sure who's the president of the japan chapter of the gretchen rubin fan club but i think it might be you (laughs) i (laughs) might be the vice president yeah (laughs) yeah yeah so um if anyone wants to join mm. the Gretchen Rubin fan club, it's, it's, it's kind of an unofficial fan mm-hmm. club, but um, yeah, sometimes we meet up, we have had one meeting. I think we need to have yeah, another definitely. one. Don't we? It's so um, nice to talk to people who I don't have to explain the Gretchenisms to, they already know them. So That's yeah, right. Because um, yeah, other people who are familiar with the the tendencies and you know if I say oh it's because I'm a questioner then I don't have to explain they understand that's really fun for me yeah it's like a little mini tribe yeah, that's isn't it? right even with my and... sister though she's she's not as crazy as me but she's a pretty big Gretchen fan and we're often talking about you know oh this was a really big happiness boost for me <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, so if you're wondering what on earth we're talking about, we're talking about Gretchen Rubin and her four tendencies. Mm-hmm. Sarah is a questioner. I'm an, um, an obliger, mm-hmm. which is someone who is can do even anything for other people, you know, like anything at work, it's done. Husband and kids stuff, yeah, sorted, but I cannot do anything for myself unless I have some kind of external expectations on me, like using a coach or, mm-hmm. um, yeah, <clears throat> something like that. So uh, whereas Sarah tends to be able to do anything she wants as long as she is satisfied that that is the best way for yeah for me it has to make sense but I can really spin all kinds of stories to myself (laughs) (laughs) and definitely get really into the analysis and um you know um over analyzing things so I use a coach Mm. too and quite often she'll stop me and be like okay let's just stop the story now (laughs) you know let's have a look at what's really going on so yeah it's helpful for me to get me out of my head so what do you think was really going on by um not being able to get that first very small episode shipped Mm, I think what was it that was yeah I think that there's like a lot of um 
fear and perfectionism, which are, what is it that Liz Gilbert says? Perfectionism is fear in fancy shoes. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Is, is that right? So um, I guess there's a little bit of resistance to the idea of, you know, like who do I think I am, you know, with my own podcast, having people on, like I'm somebody in the industry, you know, um, a little bit of that kind of imposter syndrome, I suppose. But yeah. I think yeah. Um, part of what helped me get over that was that last Saturday I moderated an event for my industry association, the Japan Association of Translators, and it went really well and people got a lot out of it and it was a reminder to me that it doesn't have to be perfect. You're still adding value, you know, and me playing small isn't doing anyone any favors yeah mm, exactly mm. that's that's a great way to look at it yeah so you got through the imposter syndrome <laughs> the fear mm -hmm. um because that's all perfectionism is, right. it's just fear yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and so yeah we can dress it up and call it perfectionism mm -hmm. um and that sounds a little bit more sexy than just fear but yeah that's <laughs> essentially what it is yeah doing something new that you've never done before that's you know it's, it's going to happen scary. yeah yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> mm. And now you're on the other side of it. It was like, well, what was all that about? Yeah, it feels you know, so like... much better to be on this side of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and this is something I want to say to all of you listening out there who have been like, oh, well, I'd like to go on Jane's podcast or, yeah, I'd really like to go on Sarah's podcast. Don't be scared. Mm -hmm. Like, honestly, um, it's super fun. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking, it is super mm -hmm. fun. And sure, there are a few nerves before your episode comes out. But when you actually listen to yourself, you're like, oh, it wasn't that bad. <laughs> Oh, um, you know, I thought I had a really terrible nasal voice, but actually it doesn't sound so bad after mm -hmm. all. You know? um, yeah, it's it's going to be great. And pretty much everyone who's come on to the podcast so far had a mini meltdown about being on the podcast <laughs> after it's finished and like like just been really stressed about it being released has then gone, oh, my God, it was actually great. Thank mm -hmm. you so much. So. Mm -hmm please don't let that be the thing that stops you from either approaching Sarah or me to be on the podcast mm. or to accepting if you are, you know, if someone approaches you to be on a podcast, mm. so just mm. give it a go. Mm. Yeah. And, and what's the worst that could happen? Your mum and your sister will hear it, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, it's, it's a great place to start. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. Absolutely. Mm. Okay, well, thank you so much for joining me today, Sarah. It's been great to talk to you about your little slice of Japan <laughs> thank you. and your industry, which is a little bit different to mm -hmm. mine, again. Mm -hmm. And I'm really hoping that uh, lots of people are going to listen to your podcast and um, you can find it. It's going to be on iTunes, isn't it? it? And it's going to be, be on. Yep. Yeah, so um, we will put some links in the show mm -hmm. notes so that you can find it easily. And make sure you subscribe and shout out to Sarah that you're listening because it really does help us too to know that actually people are listening and enjoying it and, you know you may be sitting there thinking oh this is great I'm really enjoying this but to actually just take a second to um you know jump on social media somewhere and just say hey I listened it was mm. great we really 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 appreciate that to know that um people are actually listening yeah yeah, yeah. Excellent. Any Thank final you. words Sarah? No, yeah. I think I just it I mean to reiterate what Jane said um 
this was a really fun experience. So this is the first podcast I've ever been a guest on. Um, so my only other experience with podcasting is my tiny mini episode that I released the other day and hundreds of hours of listening to podcasts. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> it was really fun to have this conversation with you, Jane. And, you know, we've met before, but you don't, we don't get the chance to sit down and have this kind of long conversation either. So that's, that's nice as well. It is, isn't mm. it? Yeah, I, that's what I love about this podcast is it gives me a chance to get to know people mm. who it's hard for me to meet them in person because they're, they're not in Fukushima. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and when we do get together, it's not it – maybe there's lots of people yeah. there and I, yeah, I don't actually get to talk to you one-to-one about your stuff, mm. you know. So, mm. yeah, that's, it's a really great thing and one of the things that I like about having this podcast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so many benefits. Okay, thank podcast. you so much. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Rock on podcasting. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, James. Thank you, Sarah. Okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. So that was the super fun interview with Sarah Bull, who is a translator and the host of a very new podcast called Translation Mavens. I hope I've got that right. So if you want to listen to this podcast, please go to the show notes for this show. You should be able to find how you can, um, the link for her podcast in iTunes and wherever you're, you like to listen to podcasts. So it's going to be everywhere, she says. <clears throat> so at this point in time, um, there's just the one episode, but as you may have heard in our interview, I challenged her to get a couple more up before this actual episode goes live. Um, so I know she likes to um, rise to a challenge like that. So I'm sure there will be a couple of really nice interviews waiting for you when you get there. And also, if you are interested in what Sarah had to say about her more hippie, <laughs> she calls it a hippie, hippie um, gakudo, which is after school care, um, you can go to the show notes and find those um, Google terms that you want us to search for Saku, Sakura Sakurambo Hoshiki I think was one and Doronko Hoiku was the other one um, yeah so they can help you find if you're looking for something that more that kind of daycare kindergarten after school care for your child um, throughout Japan um, I know I wish I would sort of had more of a chance to find those sort of places when I was looking um, three or four years ago for my own kids and yeah, so let people know that um, Sarah's got a new podcast because I'm sure if you're a translator yourself, you'll know other translators. So let them know that they can um, listen to Sarah's podcast. And if you want to be on Sarah's podcast, give her a shout out and say, hey, Sarah, I want to be on your podcast. I really love to talk about all things translation. And same for me. If you want to be on this podcast, just give me a shout out. I'm very open to suggestions and I love talking to my listeners and it would be great to have you on here. So I'll talk to you again soon. See you in the next episode.